Yeah, James, can you hear our daughter's sound machine upstairs? No. Okay, good. James, how are you? I'm well, how are you? I'm wonderful. Listener, welcome to the 13th Floor Podcast. I'm Cece. I'm Alex. I'm James. That's James. He's eating a piece of chocolate right now. James, what piece of chocolate are you eating? Uh, Tony Chocolatoni. What the heck is that? Yeah, right? Callie posted about it, and I was like, okay, I gotta try this. Chocolonely. It's called Chocolonely? Why is it called Chocolonely? Anyway. Is, are, you, are you by yourself, James? I am. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it is. It's, it's what you would imagine Wonka bars to taste like. Interesting. Okay, well, I'll have to, to find that. Does it turn you into like a giant grape or anything? <laughs> no, but it is Dutch, so there might be the contents of a Dutch oven in there. Ew, James, I don't, if, I, if we were in the same place, I'd give you a swift kick in your butt. Mm. Um, actually, oddly enough, like fun little history behind the chocolate bar, who I swear is not paying us anything. Um, it was actually created by a, a Dutch fella, Toon van de Kuchen, and he actually was appalled that most chocolates made by slaves. Like the slave trade is still very, very much a global phenomenon. And that was part of his uh, purpose. Interesting. Was to make slave-free chocolate. Yeah. Wow. Well, you learn something new every day. Wow, I missed it. Yeah. I feel like I missed the kernel of truth. I have to listen to the podcast. Yeah, Alex to learn. stepped away for a moment, but he's back. We've got our art dog is trying to figure out where to sit. So you might hear some shaky of her collar collar. Collar collar? Yeah. You guys, we're, we're hunky-dory. James is eating chocolate. Alex and I are trying to figure out where our dog can sit. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's been a full day since we recorded our last episode. Yeah. James, did you have fun researching your photographic oddities as suggested to us by Amanda? I sure did. Yeah, James looked into it. Alex looked into it. But Alex, is, he's going to take us for a, a ride kind of a ride? left field. Maybe. I don't know if it's quite... We, we're not there yet. We got to do an icebreaker. All right, you guys. Or, well, the, or was all that chocolate talk the icebreaker? <laughs> no, <laughs> we've got to give our hearty hellos. And first of all, I want to give a, uh, just a hello to one of our listeners in the Bahamas who said hello to us on Instagram. And he was really sweet and he just sent us the nicest note. So Rev, I think that's his name. Rev, thank you so much for your comments about the show. And then we also want to give our hearty hellos to the rest of y'alls around the world. So we're going to say hello to everybody today in Denmark, in Algeria. And then here in the U.S., we're going to say hello to everybody in Colorado. But no matter where you're listening, around the globe. Alex, do we want to say hello? Mm. Is there anyone I don't want to say hello to? I don't know. I feel like there's some shady individuals over there in Australia. Oh my <laughs> I'm just kidding, Australia. <laughs> um. So yeah, you guys, thank you for listening. You're the reason our world spins. Wow. This. Yeah, take that, Gwen. <laughs> um, <laughs> do great. we have an icebreaker? So we're talking about photography. So mm-hmm. I was wondering, have you ever seen a photo that everybody else treated as, you know, no big deal, but it just, something about it bothered you? I don't think that there's like a photo that bothered me per se, but I, when I was in third grade, 
we had my teacher, she was friends with a photographer mm. and she had her photographer friend bring in a whole bunch of pictures that she had just taken. And there was this one of the entranceway to a tunnel and it was just all wooded out front. And then it was just like, a, it led to a black abyss. Mm. And our project was that we had to write a story about one of the photographs that she brought in. And for some reason, that photo really just stuck out to me. And the funny thing is that years later, my dad became friends with that photographer and she actually gifted my dad that specific photo. Weird. Which he didn't know that I had written about it and that I had, you know, thought Ooh. about it for years. So <laughs> that's not really, it didn't really creep me out, but it was just a weird kind of photo coincidence. Mm. How about you, Alex? Yeah. I guess, yeah, there was, when we went on our ghost, we were doing ghost tours in Savannah. They would like show you pictures with like orbs and stuff or like ghosts in it. And like everyone was like, oh my gosh, this is like, this is crazy. And I'm sitting there bothered because I'm seeing something that no one else sees. And that's nothing. Yeah, Alex is. <laughs> <laughs> Alex does not believe in spirit photography. I think it'd be cool. I just, I, I haven't seen the evidence. Yeah, to Alex. the contrary. I'm like, oh, look, you have like a blurry lens. That's why your light looks like it's. Mm. circular that's the exacerbated the skeptic of the show being skeptical still still i've never had a photo i'm like that haunted me or like i can't think of anything other than like those like creepy pasta internet pictures like oh my gosh that's so creepy yeah but then it's like that's totally almost all of those are completely fabricated what was that one photograph that everybody was sending around that was scaring everybody of that like Bird Woman. Oh, oh I don't remember that. Moomoo? I can't think what her name. There's like Mumu or Mi- Momo. Uh, Momo. Momo. Yeah. yeah. That was kind of creepy. That was creepy. But I think the only thing that really bothers Alex is <laughs> there are two things that bother him. Neither of them are really photographed. Oh, I guess maybe one of them, but videos or photos of people having like things popped or pulled out of their body. <laughs> out of their body. <laughs> there yeah. was there was a, a booger photo that really bothered uh, him. <laughs> yeah. No, it wasn't yeah, it was a video. It was on Tosh Point oh. oh. <laughs> yeah, it's a bad one. Yeah, it makes me like, want to gag. So that's that's Alex's That and then what was the other thing you were gonna say? Uh, kidney stones. Yeah, kidney Just stones. the thought of go. kidney stones. That's my that's my fear in life. Getting a kidney stone. <laughs> That's Alex for you. James, I know that we've kind of strayed <laughs> off the topic of photography, but what haunts you? Uh, this one's like super sad, just so you know. But uh, yeah, I um, when I was a kid, I was a big fan of The Land Before Time. And Ooh. there was a picture, uh, <clears throat> I can't remember where, a magazine or something, I'm sure. Maybe it was just a still picture on um, TV or something. But uh, it was of Judith Barcy. Uh, who's the voice actress for Ducky. And she was also the voice actress for the main character, um, or more accurately, the only like human character in All Dogs Go to Heaven. Well, oh. uh, I'm sort of, and, and this isn't me trying to make it about me or anything, but I'm a bit of an empath. I tend to pick up on things uh, in terms of facial expressions or who knows what. And I remember it was a picture of, of her, and she was smiling, but it just really made me sad this picture. And I I didn't know why when I was little, I couldn't understand why it made me so sad to see, uh, this, this little girl. And, uh, turns out 
she lived in an incredibly abusive home, like just nightmarish. And her, her father ended up killing her when she was uh, very young, probably like eight or nine. So I think that was why. Did you, like, did you know, like, was it a picture before or after she before, passed away? Before. So I think it was just the subtle nuances of her face conveyed uh, a sadness. In other Dang, words. James. Oof. That is dark. It's very dark. Well. Thanks, James. You should have let one of us end on that, uh, that <laughs> yeah. icebreaker. Man. Very sad stuff, yeah. But we're going to be talking about some just weird stuff today because we're talking about photographic oddities. Again, this topic was submitted to us by Amanda. So thank you, Amanda, for sending this in. And myself, being a um, freelance photographer, newborn and family photographer, Amanda's also a photographer, she told me. So um, from photographer to photographer, I do appreciate this topic. But I think that today... We're going to get Alex out of the way first. Yeah, let's get me out of the way so we can get to the good stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Alex Alex is talking about photography, but he's talking about it like in a different... He took this topic to a different kind of area than James and I went. Yeah, some would say uh, 1,200 miles above Earth area. Wow. That's so (laughs) far. Yeah. So the, the story is kind of the culmination of a lot of things, but... It's pretty interesting, and I'm going to go, I'm going to start at the end of the story, and then I'm going to go back to the beginning, and then we'll come back to the end. Okay. Yeah, so this is like this is like memento over here. Um, <laughs> so, in 1998, the first space shuttle mission to go to the International Space Station is underway, and one of the astronauts, Jerry Ross, is on board, and he takes a picture of this thing outside the window. This object was spotted floating in low Earth orbit, and like I said, 1,200 miles. And the space agency went on to categorize this item as STS-088-724-66. And it's catalog of space junk. Space junk. Yeah, so this item is known as, by many, as the Black Knight Satellite. Bum, bum, bum. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And it's considered to be a 13,000-year-old ancient alien object or satellite. And it's just floating above Earth? Mm-hmm. Yep. So I'll go ahead and pull up a picture for you, Cece, um, in a minute. I've already designated a picture uh, in my notes where to pull this picture up <laughs> for you. Um, now, <laughs> wow. Now, while I have your attention, you're on the edge of your seat. You're excited to hear about this Black Knight satellite. Actually, sitting we're going to go back to the beginning, and we're, we're just going to maybe throw you off because uh, mm. we're going to dip back into a topic we talked about once before. And James actually did a little bit. Nikola Tesla. Nikola Tesla. Yeah. Go all the way back to him in 1899, where he said that he received radio signals from space. And that they were trying to communicate with him with numbers because he considers that a universal language, which, yes, it is. And then he proceeded to say in 1901, quote, The changes I noted were taking place periodically and with such clear suggestion of number and order that they were not traceable to any cause then known to me. Ellipses. The feeling is constantly growing on me that I had been the first to hear the greeting. Of one planet to another. Nikola Tesla is such an out there kind of a guy. He was, yeah. he was definitely plugged in. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. He was plugged in. Then, in 1927, a civil engineer stumbled upon a radio signal that he found that was being transmitted to him. He noticed that the radio signals were being transmitted from his home, like he would send them out from his house, and then mysteriously, these signals will be returned to him moments later. <clears throat> An alien phenomenon? Certainly. <laughs> <laughs> Almost like something was close enough that it could respond quickly. Hmm. The Black Knight, perhaps? Ooh, so mm. it's been up there since 1927? It, well, then about 50 years. I'm going to keep going because I'm going to oh. answer your question. Oh, okay. Then about 50 years later, in an article of, of a magazine called Analog Science Fiction that tried to understand what happened in Howell's experience. I didn't mention earlier, but the civil engineer is Jorgen Howes. Mm. What happened to Howes' experience, the author Duncan Lance tries to say that most likely what it was, was that it was a 13,000-year-old object that was orbiting the moon. Obviously. Obviously. Now, that, <laughs> <laughs> that, could, that could lead to these delayed echoes. You know, apparently this thing is swinging around the moon. It's just bouncing your signals back. Apparently... The year range that this was created, like the 13,000-year-old, was devised by the position of, and I do not understand this, but I'm going to read this to you anyway, the North Pole Star Polaris. Now, how the position of the North Pole Star Polaris leads to the age of something, I don't understand. I'm not going to pretend to. But he said that he tried plotting the delay of time between the signals in order to kind of gauge what this information was. And it was only during his second attempt to to understand the data that he realized that it looked like it was actually a star map that was being sent back to him. So they're saying, this is where we're from. Maybe. Maybe. Or this is where you can meet your doom. Yeah. Or maybe this is where you can get the best chicken wings in the galaxy. <laughs> this is our favorite KFC. Wouldn't that be nuts if it was just a commercial <laughs> from aliens? Eat a joke. That would be awesome. That would be uh, awesome. Um, however, in 1998, Duncan actually backed off these claims and says that instead he was most likely just hearing something like long delayed echoes from his own transmissions. <laughs> <laughs> like like 2.07 seconds later after the radio transmission, you can actually hear echoes. And it sounds like that, that maybe he was just listening to himself the whole time. Interesting. Uh, but maybe he backed off that theory because he was getting so much heat. Or maybe the government pressured him into changing his story. They said, hey, listen, we don't yeah. want anyone to know about that. That's you right. know what That's up right. there? Well, it is quite a so, de-escalation. <laughs> I'm getting yeah. star charts from a 13,000-year-old celestial <laughs> object. Oh, never mind. It was me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And so th there's actually been a few other moments where uh, strings have been attached to the Black Knight theory from other instances. Another one is when uh, some pictures were taken in 1960, and, well, the Navy detected an unidentified satellite in the atmosphere. Turns out it was actually a piece of the Discoverer 5. And okay. so, or, or, it was the Black Knight. 
I mean, it's the, how many times it's, have we seen the military cover up for aliens? Well, you know? if it's if it's up there, why wouldn't we know what it is if it's like within reach? Well, you're assuming you're assuming that we're not being lied to. Yeah, right? I mean that's true. Right. I always try to try to. <clears throat> I'm very gullible. Yeah. I'm just gonna put it out there. I'm gullible. Yeah. So going back to this topic of uh, photographical oddities. Yeah. This is the picture of the Black Knight satellite. What do you think, Cece? What's it? I'm just trying to zoom in on it. Look at it. It looks. This is the picture that the guy took from his ship. Like this is the legit picture. It looks like this black, like almost little- rock-like thing. Yeah, it floating. looks weird. But it could looks, you see this being like an alien ship? It like looks a, like this spaceship from the second Thor movie with the Dark Elves ooh, where it comes down and it's yeah. like, ooh, yeah. It, does it looks far look too like angular, that. in my opinion, to be a celestial object. Yeah, so it looks it looks not natural. It looks like something that doesn't belong there. Uh-huh. And we don't know. I mean, no one really knows for sure. Except for the person that took the photograph says that it's definitely a... Thermal space blanket. A thermal oh, space I didn't think blanket. Of that. I was, I was thinking he, of he, rocks and stuff. Yep. He, was, so he, he said that they were outside. Uh, that it was most likely from a repair that was done outside the ship. Someone dropped it. I mean, it does look like a thermal space. blanket. I totally see that now. Yeah, I don't know see, what a thermal blanket looks but like. I would say that this is an example of the photographic oddity of perspective. Perspective. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Now, according to the photographer, you know, again, it's his words, but is this a case of something more sinister? Or is this actually a thermal blanket? And a thermal blanket, it's just like a sheet of like. Mylar. Wait, it's mylar, mylar, but it looks okay. It looks like a, a piece of aluminum that's just really warm. Yeah, I have a mylar yeah. blanket, by the way. Well, oh. aren't you special? Well, oh, so you've got your own Black Knight satellite. Okay. There we go. Um, but <laughs> the, as, as for like the things that Tesla was hearing, though, it's the, they've kind of determined that it's most likely he was actually listening to pulsars from far, far away. From stars? Yeah. So he was most likely hearing star noise. Or stars actually talk to people, and we just haven't realized it yet, yeah. which is also <laughs> very possible. But some people do think that the Black Knight satellite is still very possible and even likely exists. These people are probably crazy. Uh, I was- <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding about that. But the, the one thing about the Black Knight satellite that people are kind of arguing about is like, could it be real? Why, If it is real, how could it survive with so much space debris? Or, you know, not touching down or anything like that. But if this is a 13,000-year-old satellite, I would imagine, like, it's got some sort of force field. I would imagine space debris would not be a concern. I would imagine it wouldn't have to leave to go get food. Because it's probably got, like, an onboard, like... Chef. Yeah. Personal chef. Yes, the chef. (laughs) The chef. (laughs) Yeah. Or, like, an onboard greenhouse, sustainable food sources. I... I would say it's very possible that this is the Black Knight satellite. So uh, are you being not skeptical this time? No, I'm skeptical. This is definitely a thermal blanket. <laughs> <laughs> so but you- it looks cool, and it's it's got a lot of people sold on it ever since mm-hmm. this thing's come around. And since this picture has surfaced, all these threads have really been pulled together. Man. Mm. Everyone's like, ooh, what is it? Yeah. 
And Alex says it's a thermal blanket. Yeah, it looks like it's a thermal blanket. Mm. Well, you guys, that is Alex's photography oddity topic. Maybe thermal blankets are the equivalent of weather balloon on Earth. So when you go in space, it's thermal blanket. On Earth, it's weather balloon. James, what are your thoughts on that? (laughs) I mean, I I can see people making it up for that very reason. Um, That being said, uh, again, the more I look at it, the more I realize that it's it's almost certainly a thermal blanket. (laughs) It's just a thermal blankie. How dare they litter the airfield with? Oh, it's ungodly how much garbage is in orbit. Like it's it's almost sad. Well, I don't figure Alex would start ranting about China over that one because of that. uh, Uh, was it a satellite that fell? There was something that fell in the Maldives. Oh yeah, yeah, they're, they're, yeah, that they lost control of a uh, satellite. Yeah, it was a satellite. No, or was it a rocket? There was a rocket. Yeah, I think yeah, it was they a lost. Con- yeah, they lost control of a rocket, and they were like, uh, and they were like, yeah, we have no idea where this is going to go down. Yep. Good luck, everybody. Yeah, every <laughs> news publication was like, chances are it'll hit the water, but then like as it's falling to the ground, everyone's like. Yeah, it looks like we'll actually be okay. It's going to hit the Indian Ocean. It's like, oh, yeah, you really didn't know this whole time. You didn't know? China. Well, <laughs> I'm glad that everything is okay on that front, but it's my turn, Alex. I'm going I'm to take, take the torch from you. It's my turn to talk about photography oddity. Okay. So, lovelies, today I'm going to be talking about a spirit photographer named William Hope. Have you guys ever heard of William Hope before? No. Nope. Good. All right. For my sources, uh, there are tons of websites out there with like little blurbs about him. And they're short, just like little infos with little galleries of all of his work and stuff. But his spirit photos are pretty spooky to look out. But my citations today include museumcrush.org, NPR, and publicdomainreview.org. But spirit photography... It's exactly what it sounds like. It's just taking photos of ghosts and spirits and oogly booglies and those things. And his whole shtick was, I'm a medium. I can talk to the dead. And I can also like get them to pose for a picture with you if you want it. So that was kind of how he approached the whole spiritualist movement himself. (laughs) And according to Wikipedia, he's considered a pioneer of spirit photography art form. And he was born in Crewe, Cheshire, England in 1863. So mm-hmm. kind of like right before the spiritualist movement really picked up. I wonder if he had a cat. He, uh, You know what? He might have had a cat. He seems like a cat person. Uh, the joke is because he's from Cheshire. I, I know, James. Okay. A Cheshire cat. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. James, I feel like you're judging me today. Mm. <laughs> you, listen, you get a special bar of chocolate, and then all of a sudden you just you know what jokes I understand and don't understand. Okay, so he didn't start out as a smooth-talking ghosty hunter, though, okay? okay? he His first job, he was a carpenter, and he did that for almost 40 years. And then he was in his workshop one day, and I imagine he's just, like, sitting there carving a piece of wood or something. And then he just goes, you know what? Wood is boring. I want to be a photographer. And that's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> he found a, found a camera, and he started taking pictures of ghosts. And he... He got into photography, it was 1905 when he took his first spirit photo. So he was 39, I think, or 40. But people saw it, and they freaked out about it. And then he founded the Crew Circle Spiritualist Group, 
And I think it was a group of just like six spear photographers. But he, he made a name for himself with all of his crazy photography. So he would bring on clients. They would say, hey, I want to take a picture of myself and my Aunt Doris. Aunt Doris passed away like six years ago. Can you take a picture with me and her? And he's like, sure, I can. And so he would have like a little seance. He would call Aunt Doris into the, the room. And then he would snap a picture of the person. And then he would give the person their photo after he develops everything. And oh my goodness, Aunt Doris is there right next to me. Mm. Creepy, right? Creepy. <laughs> Real quick though, James, did you just hiccup and actually go hiccup? I, I, I do. That's how I hiccup. That's how he hiccups. I just heard, and it's gonna sound creepy on the podcast until you, until you leave this in. And you hear hiccup. <laughs> 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 oh, well, all right, back to you, Susan. Yeah, spoiler alert, you guys. Hope was just a major fraud. Okay, all this, all the so called spirit photos, and I say that in quotations, spirit photos. They were doctored and faked, but at the time, people were kind of grasping for any proof at all that there was life after death, especially when all of this was happening. It was right after World War I, mm. and so people were – they were really looking for just a little bit of hope, <laughs> mm. which is funny because his name is William Hope. Hope. He gave the people hope. He gave the people hope, but yeah, he would just – he would bring in these people and say, I'm going to channel your dead loved one and take a photo of you with them. And there were obviously skeptics, like, from the very beginning surrounding his quote-unquote art. But, you know, he had so many happy clients who were just happy to have a picture of themselves with their, their lost loved one that they didn't care. It's just like, oh, look, it's yeah. me and my my spouse or my long-departed whoever. Mm-hmm. And so... Got Aunt Doris to dab in the background. <laughs> 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 what he would do, though, is he would he would double expose the pictures, which I'll go over how he kind of did it specifically. But whenever he brought on a client, they would have to provide him a photo of their loved one. So he would literally just copy that photo and <laughs> superimpose no. it. Something like wearing the same clothes and everything in it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You'd think that would draw some suspicion. Yeah, maybe. And that's what most, like, a lot of people were just so happy to have that picture. And then, like, yeah. and like then, she's in the exact same pose and outfit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you had some people who were like, wait a minute, this is just a little bit suspicious. <laughs> so in 1920, a guy named Edward Bush, he was one of the first persons that was like, you know what, I'm going to make it my mission to out this guy as a fraud because he's basically just profiting from families who were grieving their lost loved ones. So what Edward Bush did, and he, he went into it with an alias, you guys, he just called himself Bush Edward. <laughs> <laughs> no, he called himself Wood. That was his nickname. What? <laughs> Uh-oh. Alex is getting giggly, James. Yep. <laughs> he's, he has had what? a long day. Yeah. So, so Wood set up a meeting with hope and he sent a letter to hope and said i want a picture of myself and my quote-unquote dead son and he sent uh hope a picture of his son but it was really a picture of a person who was still alive not even deceased (laughs) he sent that to him and so wood had his little seance with hope and hope snaps a picture during the seance and then later, Bush receives his photo, his spirit image, and it's just the exact same photo of the living person in the picture with him. Same pose, same clothes, everything. And sometimes, 
sometimes he would get artsy with it. He would like, <laughs> 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 he, would, he would cut out their head. So it's just like the floating head in the background. Oh, nice. See, yeah. That's what he should be doing. That he did way that. he got less evidence. He did that sometimes. And then sometimes there was one photo that he took of a family with their car. And they wanted a, a spirit photo. Did the car float? The no, the car. The car. It wasn't. <laughs> wasn't the long lost car. No, he he double exposed their loved one sitting inside the car. So it's like he got artsy with it. Okay, sometimes oh. he would double expose. Sometimes he would triple expose to get layers. A, he was having a lot of fun with it. He was. Yeah. He was very artsy. Um. So, anyways, yeah, that's that's kind of how one of the people uh, would slash Bush. Kind of were like, hey, this guy's he's making this up, you guys. So the Society of uh, Cyclical Research, which we've mentioned before on the show, they were trying to, you know, expose crooked mediums and find real psychics, like expose real versus fake way back when. And they had this one member of their group named Harry Price. We might have mentioned him previously, but he was especially out for, for hope. He was like, this guy is just taking advantage of families, stealing money from people. And, you know, he's, he's a fraud. So Harry Price, he made it his mission to, to kind of expose him as a fraud. And do you guys know who came to Hope's defense when Price was out for him? Oh, gosh. It wasn't the flipping author of uh, – it wasn't Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, was it? It was Sir Arthur oh, Conan man. Doyle. Yay. He was all in for hope. He was very, he believed it. Doyle, you know, he was a doctor. He was a smart guy, but he was just like full blown hook, line and sinker when it came to spiritualism. Yeah, he, he really was because like it's anybody, I feel anybody nowadays would see these photos and go, oh, that's fake. Like when I was looking into different photography oddities and I saw William Hope's work, I was like, oh, I know how they did that. That's super easy to do. I used to do it all the time. When I was younger, I used to make movies with my friends. We had a, a little camcorder. We would just make stupid little movies. But we would do it where we would film – we would put our camera on a tripod. We would film me standing on one side of the room and then me standing on the other side of the room. It looks like I have twins when you lay those images over one another. So mm. it's like – it's very easy to do. But yeah, Doyle was – he believed in this wholeheartedly. He, I think till his dying day, he was like, hope is real. And he was like, nobody, nobody puts hope in the corner. (laughs) He was not for it. So he actually, Doyle went after Price when Price tried to expose. There was a lot of drama, you guys. Sounds like it. Yes, it was a lot of drama. But nowadays, you guys, faking a photo, it's, it's easy. It's super easy. And people nowadays are very dismissive of spirit photos. Like, you know, even if you have an orb, people are like, oh, it's a piece of dust. We've got Photoshop nowadays. So it's hard to believe anything that comes out of anywhere because everything is Photoshopped. Good way to be. Yeah. I don't believe anything anymore. It's kind of nuts. Like, I could literally watch, like, a war on TV and I'll be like, those countries may not even exist. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Hope, he didn't have Photoshop, but he did have the technique called double exposure. And how it works is the photographer, they have their film or photographic plate in um, in Hope's case, just because he didn't have film. I don't think back then he had the photographic plate. And they expose the film or plate to light to capture an image. And then you put the lens cap back on really quickly and close it off. 
And then Hope would just wait for his client to come. And then when he'd take the cap off and to snap a picture of his client, you've already got that image that's burned into that film or plate that of the, you know, the so-called spirit. So that when he, what's it called? When he develops that film or that picture, it looks like the spirit is there with them. Does that make sense? It, it does. Yeah. So when he would develop these pictures, the spirit would be there. It would look all wispy and ghostly because you would move the camera a little bit to make it look like it's, you know, not in focus. <laughs> and, and so that's kind of how he captured his ghostly images, his spirit photos. It's nuts. But what kind of astounds me, this is the thing that really like took me aback with just hope in general is that, he and his little cruise circle spirituals group, in order to do this, they had to get photos of the loved ones of their clients. And photos back then were very precious things. It's not like you just had 20 copies of right. a photo sitting around. So I think it just kind of amazed me that people would so willingly give this image of their lost loved one to a complete stranger. Granted, he is promising to get them a photo of their lost loved one with them. But in my brain, that would set off a little red flag. like, And then, you know, you get your photo and it's literally the exact same picture. But anyways, <laughs> I wonder if they got their pictures back afterwards. I doubt it. Especially if he had, like, cut out their face and just put their face in there. You know what I mean? Anyway. <laughs> they get their picture back. Like, their original picture back and the face is just missing. <laughs> <They're> like- <laughs> it's horrifying. <laughs> Well, nowadays, it makes me think of, because nowadays, psychics can literally go online and find just about any piece of information about their client that they want. So it's hard to take a psychic seriously nowadays, but he didn't, he didn't have that. So just thinking about the lengths that they would have to go to, to actually make these photos. But Hope was a very, very, very popular spirit photographer. So he made a huge name for himself. He was popular until, you know, till the very end of his life. I think he died in 1933. Mm-hmm. But people didn't fully dismiss him and his quote-unquote art until about a decade after his death. People were finally like, oh, wait a minute, this guy. <laughs> so that's that's the story of William Hope. If you guys Google William Hope spirit photographer on Google, you can actually see a whole bunch of his work. Mm-hmm. It's It's not that spooky just because we know how it was done, but – James, I'm done. I want to hear from you now. Okay. Well, speaking of spooky photos, this one is not, uh, nobody's ever questioning the validity of this because it's just 100% real. Um, and that is postmortem photography. Yeah. So, yeah. In the 19th century, this was like super, super popular. So much so that if you went to a, you know, a, one of your grandparents or great grandparents' houses, and they had photos in their home. There's a good chance that there's, you know, a postmortem photo of somebody in the family tree. Yeah. So it, it really, really, really disturbs people nowadays, like a lot. The idea yeah. that you would, you know, just prop up a dead person that you care about and take pictures of them. Um, but really, this is the weirdest thing. What What I'm... I'm not just talking about it. I'm actually going to defend uh, postmortem photography as more normal than what we do now and healthier than what we do now. I think what we do now is actually weirder. So without further ado, so why did <laughs> postmortem photography become so popular? Well, there's a couple reasons. One, 
it was this amazing new technology that captured images of people. So that's flipping cool. It's this amazing new technology, but it's also super expensive. Um, so you didn't really take pictures of people while they were alive too often. And even then, you know, if you've seen those old pictures, it was, it was a very rare treat. You know, nowadays it's so hard to think about a photo being as valuable as it was intrinsically, not extrinsically, but uh, obviously it translated to extrinsic value. Cause like I said, it's very expensive, but well, yeah, a lot of, a lot of families, the first photo that they would actually have together would often be one of these photos. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but you know, we think about it now, you know, my phone has, let me go ahead and, and just check real quick. It has, 390 photos, 26 screenshots, 94 downloads, and 621 older stuff photos. That is to say, photos that predate the phone itself. You have no photos on your phone, James. See, see, I, I'm astonished by the number. <laughs> and I'm, I'm even more astonished. I haven't looked through it to figure out the percentages, but it's amazing what percentage of it is like just, you know, look at the pasta I made this week. Like just <laughs> nonsense, nothing. Look of at importance. my crowd. What? Look at my kraut. Yeah, look at my kraut, you guys. It's it's just amazing because photos are, are they literally have no value. And I, I mean that. Like, if you think about it, if you were to ask James, a random person. Hmm? How dare you belittle <laughs> my side hustle? <laughs> what, what I mean to say is photos taken by phone have no extrinsic value. And what I mean okay. by that is if you were to ask somebody, hey. How much would you value each of these photos on your phone? You would get a blank stare because it doesn't make sense. The idea that you could put a monetary value on an image on a phone. It, it, it's, it literally took five seconds to snap and it takes very little memory to save. And so it's nothing. But back then, photos were incredibly expensive, very rare and cutting edge technology. And so... This idea of using it to preserve somebody makes a lot of sense because if you think about it, if you want to see, you know, uh, a relative while they're alive, the logic is you visit them or you write to them. Uh, and, <laughs> you know, it wasn't a big deal. But if you wanted to preserve the memory of someone, like if you think about it, that's what we do now with, with cemeterial monuments. So that's sort of what this was like. It was a way of monumentalizing or memorializing somebody who had passed. So that makes very logical sense. But it ties in with something else, though. You see, this got very popular around the time of the Civil War. And we have talked a little bit about this before, that the Civil War was a monumentally horrific conflict wherein entire battlefields would be knee-deep in the blood of human beings, many of whom were under the age of 15. It's just a, a nightmarish period of, of American history and, in my opinion, of world history. Terrifying conflict. And after this happened, for the first time in, in a long time, for the first time really ever in American history, you had this odd scenario where all these families had lost their sons and their husbands and their brothers in this conflict, and they couldn't see them. Because before then, you know, generally speaking, if somebody that you cared about died, they died in the same town where you lived. Mm -hmm. So now all of a sudden, all these families want to see that person that they care about. So 
This resulted because of the technology of the time, just happened to be right for this. It was like the perfect storm. This resulted in the funerary business happening. And this is where the, the Victorian view of death really comes from. This idea that, well, we have refrigeration now. We have, well, we have, we have blocks of ice that we can transport by train. We have uh, mm-hmm. preservatives. We have photographs. We have mass transportation. And so what happened was this funeral business started happening where dead people were being preserved for the first time ever. They were being pickled and embalmed, etc. They were being made up to look as if they were sleeping, which is something we still flip and do along with embalming. They yeah. were being transported across the flipping country, like from one area to another back home. And then they were being photographed as a way of memorializing them. That was sort of the logic there. So I think that the photographs are the most reasonable thing about that whole story, if you think about it. The, and what's crazy is that's the thing that we don't do. We, we still pickle people. We make them up like they're sleeping so we can sort of, in a weird subconscious way, pretend that they've not passed. And then if you look at the view of death when death photography had just started, postmortem photography, I think that was a much healthier view. This idea of, well, somebody we care about is lost. They look totally dead because that's what people are supposed to look like when they die. Let's take a picture to memorialize them. And that I think that's a lot more reasonable than what we do now, which is we deny death. We pretend it's not real. We pickle people, which I think is crazy. We make them up like they're sleeping, which is weird. And your average person just isn't. The reason why we find postmortem photography so disturbing is your average person just doesn't know what a dead person looks like. They've not experienced that directly. And as a result, this is me getting on a soapbox at this juncture. I'm sorry. But as a result, we have people who deny death as a normal process, as a normal part of life. And then they... They, they dye their hair so they don't look like they're aging. And then they get plastic surgery so they don't look like they're aging. And they assist they're younger than they look or whatever so they don't look like they're aging. And it's all this weird denial of mortality. And the Victorian age where this process flourished, post-mortem photography, at the very least, we argued that they were death-obsessed, that they were obsessed with death and fixated and memento mori and all that. I would argue that while I do think they took it a little far, I think that our (laughs) denial of death as a natural process is far less healthy. So not only do I think that postmortem photography, while a little creepy to somebody in, in modern times, I think that it's actually a much healthier way of coping with a fundamentally natural part of life than what we do. Mm. I'm not saying you should prop grandma up in a chair and take her picture. I'm just saying it's better than what we do. When it's your time, James, boy, do we have plans for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we know what James wants his yeah. big send off to be. I want a full marionette show. <laughs> oh, my. All right. <laughs> well, you guys, that was – I was not expecting you to go take it to that that specific area, James, but that was very interesting little tidbit. Thank you. Because I do – I think that – it is hard to cope with just the idea of death. And yeah. so most people just don't. Yeah, they don't. And, you know, the weirdest thing, in my opinion, though, about the Victorian view uh, was the way they treated widows. It was it was very odd. Um, I think the logic there was you know, people would be skeptical if a woman got married too soon or, or didn't 
mourn enough for her husband. Um, so what you had was this really ornate way of mourning. Like for a man, death was just severely elaborate. Like if somebody died, you had to send out black envelope letters to all the folks you knew. And if you were a woman, man, you had to dress in black for, I think it was 18 months. It was uh, a long time. 18 months. And and I'm not just talking about like a, a, a black blue jeans and black shirt, you know, it was like insane. Like you had to dress like, like Gothic Lolita Morticia Adams for like 18 months and you had to wear this weird veil that that the way they were painted with the black ink, they would like leach through and and get like black streaks in your face. It was just a very uncomfortable and weird thing that uh, I, I think it was actually probably the outside of embalming is probably the weirdest practice they engaged in. It was almost I like an it. arms race to see who could like mourn harder or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and at that point in history, there there were a lot of widows. Mm-hmm. Well, you guys, is there anything else you want to add to the photography oddity topic before we drop maze? Mm. Memento mori, that's all I got. All right, and today uh, it is time for us to draw from our special Patreon oh, yeah. vase. Alex, but wait, before we draw this one. Okay. If somebody wants to submit a topic to our special Patreon base, because we don't have that many topics in here. Nope. Um, how can they do so? They could do it on Patreon.com. You could be uh, become a subscriber to our Patreon at the is it the four dollar level? The Ogo Pogo. Is it the Ogo? What? Okay. I don't know, James. I think it's the Ogo Pogo. Yeah, it's the Ogo Pogo. Anyways, you can submit a topic to us, and we only have a handful in here. Okay, Alex. Pick one. All right. Okay, you guys. Next week, we are going to be talking about, and this topic was submitted to us by Henry, the host. He wants us to talk about out-of-place animals. He's going to be over the moon. So we talked about killer creatures recently. He messaged me today about our hippos that we did. he, He mentioned on here, he wants specifically... Pablo Escobar's hippos, living fossils, and invasive species like snakeheads, and how the world's only wild camels are in Australia. I like how he wants to tell us things that he already knows all about. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Henry. Henry, we're going to talk about your out-of-place animals next week. So, you guys, I think with that, Alex, who does our music? Our music is by Grant Cook. You can find his music on Spotify, Amazon Music, iTunes, anywhere you listen to music. We hope that (laughs) until next week, you can keep keep it it straight. straight.